Hello everyone, it's Amber, and I'm finally back with another episode of Pan Am. And to get you in the Paris mood, I'm recording here at the Palais Royale some ambient sounds to accompany our podcast today. The Palais Royale, in case you don't know, used to be called the Palais Cardinal. It is just by the Louvre in the first arrondissement, and it is a gorgeous, hidden away little garden. Today it's full, it's the school holidays, it's a sunny day, so people are picnicking, children are playing football, there are birds. Birds, there are tourists, it's lovely. So enjoy the episode. Hello and welcome back to Pan Am. For any new listeners, this is a podcast about Paris and what I like to think of as Paris hidden in plain sight. There are so many books and things about secret Paris or undiscovered Paris, but Honestly, so many people have written and know about Paris that I find it hard to believe that there are any secrets left. So rather, my podcast is for people who are interested in some of the more unusual or less well-known aspects of stories or the people who lived in this, the city that I love so much. Also, I don't just want to look at the history of a person or a monument, but rather see how they fit into a story and discover that in more detail. Also, this podcast is a great excuse for me to indulge my love of buying books on my favourite subject and exploring people or places that I don't know know so much about. Today, I wanted to continue with our theme from last time, the Académie Française. If you've been listening to the French news, then you'll know there's been much excitement at the Academy with their new ruling of the feminisation of job titles. This means having a different word for the female version of a job. Some jobs can already be masculine and feminine, like nurse, infirmière or infirmier. This was all brought into sharp focus recently for the French when the mayor, Anne Hildegaud, insisted on being called Madame la Marie, which technically doesn't exist, as she should really be referred to as Madame le Marie. Now enough of all that, and on with the episode. It's been inspired by the book Rue des Salauds by Oscar Lambard. I'm not going to translate Stello as I want to keep it clean, and I've been meaning to get into this book for some time as I really like it. The premise is that many of the streets in Paris, or the Rue, have been named after important or famous people through history, even though some of them have rather dubious characters. On his front cover, he writes, L'histoire leur a donné une rue et pourtant. History gave them a street, and yet. We might say that they rue the day, Ha ha, that they named a rue after them. Sorry, terrible joke. Anyway, since the first entry to this book is none other than our old anti-hero Richelieu, I thought it might be a good opportunity to look a little at the man himself and discover if indeed he was a salaud. Also, I am a huge fan of RuPaul, so any chance to say the word rue fills me with joy. Now, obviously, most of the people in the book are men, so in the style of RuPaul, I shall try to make herstory and suggest some new names for streets in Paris for many of the overlooked women that have contributed to the city. I'm not the first person to do this, however. Activists from Osez le Féminisme, Dare Feminism, did something very similar. The group were outraged that the streets are named to reflect the history of a city and women should be as well recognised as men. But according to them, only 2.6% of roads in Paris are named after women. Quite shocking. So to combat this inequality, they got to work and renamed the streets in central Paris and included women such as American singer Nina Simone, who lived in France, 
Elizabeth Jacquet de la Guerre, who was a composer and a great musician who played at the royal court during the 17th century. Sophie Scholl, who was a German anti-Nazi political activist who was executed by the Third Reich. Or Jean Chauvin, one of the first women to be a lawyer and who pioneered for women's right to child support. They hoped that the city of Paris would take notice and begin naming more streets after women. I'm not sure that they actually managed to do this because even more recently, another feminist group, Nutut, did a very similar thing and renamed the streets in the city. I hope that the city of Paris soon takes notice and starts naming more streets after women. But until they do, I shall take up their mantle here at Panam. So let's get straight into it. We are here on the Rue de Richelieu in the first arrondissement. The street was opened in 1634 when Richelieu built his fabulous Palais Cardinal, which is still here today, but known as the Palais Royal. Let's take a minute to set the scene of Paris at the time of Richelieu. It would have looked very different indeed. It was much smaller than it is today. It would have been possible to walk at a brisk pace from the north end of the city to the south, a distance of about three kilometers in about half an hour. The city was surrounded by walls which were four meters high and two meters thick, accessible through 14 gates which were closed at night. The narrow streets of Paris were dark and dangerous, and the estimated population was about 400,000. 40,000 or so were beggars, and their most famous residence was of course the Corps de Miracle. Find out more about that in my other episode. Versailles had not yet been built, so the king would have stayed at the Louvre. No one would have been sipping coffee on a terrace, as café culture did not become popular in Paris until much later in the 17th century, kicked off in 1686 with the opening of Café Procope, which is still around today. Rue de Richelieu is full of history. Check out parisrue.com and you'll see this street has seen quite a lot of action in the historical sense. The philosopher Diderot died at number 39, Molière lived and died at number 40, Simon Bolivar, the revolutionary, lived at number 63. I could go on, but we're not here for them. We are here for Richelieu himself. Now we mentioned him last time, as he founded the Académie Française, but if you have no idea who he is, then you've come to the right place. It's the time to learn a bit about Richelieu, his life, and if indeed he was a sallow. Cardinal Richelieu, also known as the Chief Minister or the Red Eminence due to the colour of his snazzy red bishop's robes, was a powerful 17th century nobleman, statesman and clergyman. He was the chief advisor to the king, Louis XIII, and some say the real ruler of the realm. He's most often remembered due to the success of Dumas's book, The Three Musketeers, where he's portrayed as wicked, self-serving and an all-around exemplary villain. See the latest BBC version if you're in any doubt. In order to achieve his goals, which he did, Richelieu would stop at nothing and he's been accused of being manipulative, cunning and without morals. He was famous for using spies and he had a spider's web of private informants which extended throughout the country, keeping him informed of everything, including various death threats against himself, which he dealt with very harshly. He is described as a master of dissimulation, cruel, fastidious and not above putting aside his religious beliefs in order to further the interests of France. Although he was undeniably pivotal in transforming France into a strong centralised state, many people suffered and died due to his policies. 
So let's look at them in a bit more detail. Richelieu's politics can be boiled down to two objectives. He wanted a strong, centralised monarchy and a united France. The monarchy was being undermined by wealthy nobles who wanted power for themselves and often ignored the king. At the same time, France was under threat from the powerful Habsburg Empire in Germany. Two themes, power and religion, are key to understanding Richelieu and the political climate of the time. Let us consider first the question of monarchy and power. France at this time was still largely a feudal society. The local nobility dominated their regions and they were the de facto rulers in their lands. The great noble families owned massive estates and they even had their own private armies. These noble families owed more allegiance to themselves than to France. Needless to say, they didn't like each other much. The nobility was factionalised and they constantly quarrelled and also fought each other to gain influence and even colluded with foreign powers against their king. The actual power of the monarch was minimal. The king in France was dependent upon these nobles to raise taxes and an army. If the aristocrats did not want to cooperate with the king, he was in great difficulties. The situation was not helped when you think of the monarch at the time. Louis XIII was made king just before his ninth birthday in 1610, following the assassination of his father, Henry IV. His mother, Mary de' Medici, was put in charge as regent until he was considered old enough, which is 13 in case you were wondering, to rule on his own. So this boy king himself was hardly able to inspire trust and encourage wayward nobles to get into line. Becoming king so young, he learnt to rely on his aides for advice, first his mother, but later Richelieu. Indeed, it got to a point where he had to choose between them. He chose Richelieu and banished his mother. Richelieu, in turn, set about strengthening the French monarchy, largely by weakening those who might oppose the king and strengthening those that could support him. In the eyes of Richelieu and Louis XIII, the biggest threats to the power of the monarchy were the Huguenots, the French Protestants, and the nobles. Richelieu made it illegal for Huguenot cities to have walls. The cardinal personally supervised the siege of their stronghold, La Rochelle. A devastating blockade took place, resulting in the 25,000 inhabitants being reduced through starvation and disease to a mere 5,000, and ultimately they were forced to surrender, and Huguenot power was severely limited. He also forbade the nobles from building fortified castles. This way, they could neither insult the king nor hide from him with their armies. To further limit the influence of the nobles, Richelieu supported widespread reforms, giving more power to government agents who were drawn from the middle classes. They received a greater role in governing the kingdom and maintaining its laws, and consequently the nobles received less, which further weakened their position. Now, let's think about France and religion. Richelieu came to power during the Thirty Years' War, a war which at its origins was the fight between Catholic and Protestants, and according to Wikipedia, one of the most destructive conflicts in human history. It resulted in 8 million fatalities, not only from military engagements but also from violence, famine and plague. Apparently it got so bad that there was even talk of cannibalism. It was being fought between the Habsburgs, who were at the head of the powerful Holy Roman Empire, but for clarity this was mainly made up of what is modern-day Germany and various Protestant states. 
It started when the new Holy Roman Emperor, Ferdinand II, the Habsburg Emperor, decided to impose Catholicism on everyone, and certain groups took against this. The war, however, soon developed into a devastating struggle for a balance of power in Europe, and ultimately led to the destruction of Germany, with France emerging as the dominant European power. It was an undeniable win for France, but how did they achieve this? Despite Richelieu's destruction of the Protestants at La Rochelle, he supported foreign Protestant armies, notably the Swedish against the Habsburgs. In other words, Richelieu fought the Protestants in France to make France united and strong, but supported Protestant armies abroad to keep Germany divided and weak. Coherent for his overall plan for a powerful France, but undeniably confusing bearing in mind he is a Catholic bishop. To illustrate this, here's a quick excerpt from the BBC's The Musketeers. Need I remind you that you are a cardinal, one of the highest officers within the Catholic Church? I'm also First Minister of France. In matters of religion, I defer to Rome. In all else, I am my country's servant. France's alliance with Sweden is both unnatural and undesirable. Now we come to it. Protestants are the enemies of the true faith. Sweden is an important strategic ally. The treaty is indispensable. There are those who fear for King Louis's mortal soul if it is ratified. Well, that's so medieval. Medieval? You think to have faith is medieval? We're not in the seminary now, Luca. This is not the time or the place for sophistry. Tell the Pope that France will not break with Sweden. Is that your final word on the subject? It is. To sum up, Richelieu changed France from a feudal society into a modern state. He was instrumental in the establishment of an absolute monarchy in France. Let's not forget, after Louis XIII comes the Sun King, Louis XIV. Because he managed to curb the power of the French nobility. His foreign policy effectively ended the Habsburg threat to France and made France one of the most powerful kingdoms on the continent. But his military campaigns and administrative forms led to widespread poverty, rebellion and famine in the countryside. Richelieu made France great, but at what cost? Now, I do not begrudge the cardinal his street, although I do think Oscar Lambert was right to include him amongst the salauds of history. So how might we balance up his wicked ways with a street or two named after some of the deserving ladies from Paris's history? I have chosen two. There are so many, but I decided they had to have a link with the Cardinal and the Academy. So here goes. Dans une rue de Paname, errant au bord de l'eau, j'fumais mon hamster. Firstly, Mary de Gournay. She was a contemporary of Richelieu and a kick-ass 17th-century Parisian feminist. She's best remembered for her friendships and writings on Montaigne. He, of course, is the philosopher and essayist. A statue of the great man is just a hop, skip and a jump away from the University La Sorbonne, and if you happen upon him, you will have noted his shiny right foot. Yes, it seems it brings luck to rub his toes before an exam, and this is what the students, or at least the tourists, like to do. But let's not get distracted by men and their shiny shoes, and back to Marie. She was also a novelist and wrote a number of literary compositions, including The Equality of Men and Women. 
Egalité des hommes et des femmes, which was a fierce defense of women's rights, and my favorite title, The Lady's Grievance, Greffe de Dame. She insisted that women should be educated and independent. She also argued that given the same opportunities, privileges and education as men, women could equal men's accomplishments. Right on. Remarkably forward thinking for her time. She hung out with all the important people at the time. King Henry IV, Queen Margot, Mary de Medici and Louis XIII. And she even helped Richelieu create the Académie Française. She translated a number of classic texts, but my favourite wiki fact about her must surely be that she also wrote poetry about her cat, Leonore. Mary de Gournay is now recognised as the first woman in France to contribute to literary criticism, and one of the first to argue forcibly on the equality of men and women. She's buried at Saint-Eustache Church in Paris, which is a lovely church and well worth a visit, although gruesomely her bones are probably kept down in the underground ossuary. The cemetery which was once attached was condemned and the bodies moved to the catacombs. I think she is well deserving of a street name. My other proposition is American expat Natalie Clifford Barney. She was a playwright, poet, novelist, and is sometimes referred to as the Queen of Parisian Lesbians. She adopted Paris as her home from around 1896 until her death in 1972. And she's famous for having hosted a weekly salon every Friday from her home at number 20 Rue Jacob, which became quite an institution, a place of meeting, discussion, and somewhere which supported socially progressive thought. In the early days, her salon was a very genteel affair and alcohol was not served at all, rather just tea and cake. But as the 1920s rolled around and the expats saw the lost generation fleeing the sobriety of the United States arrived, she was forced to give in and serve champagne and other alcoholic drinks. Her salon itself sounds rather glorious. Behind the doors of number 20 you would find a calm, ivy-covered courtyard where the invitees would gather in a mock Greek-style temple known as the Temple de l'Amitié, or the Temple of Friendship. Barney supported artists and writers, and if you can name any writer or artist that was in Paris at this time, they were sure to have been there. Gertrude Stein, Colette, Ezra Pound, T.S. Eliot, Scott Fitzgerald, Marcel Proust, Sylvia Beach, James Joyce, Isadora Duncan, Truman Capote, honestly I could go on and on and on so let's stop there. Although men and women were welcome, she was keen to support women writers. In 1927 she created the Salon des Femmes, or the Women's Salon, in response to the all-male academy which was just around the corner and refused to allow women to join. It was aimed at promoting women writers. Honorees included Colette, Gertrude Stein and Juna Barnes. Later, she even supported Marguerite Yusenar, who would go on to be the first woman to join the Academy itself. As a person, she sounds fascinating, not only for what she did, but who she was. She came from a very wealthy family, and her money initially gave her power to free herself from social constraints. She was able to convince her father while he was still alive that she was improving her French and needed to stay in Paris, a city that she said always seemed to me the only city where you can live and express yourself as you please. After her father's death she no longer needed to pretend and was able to live happily in Paris without the pressure to settle down and marry. By all accounts her love affairs were many, varied and very public. She was described as the glamorous Amazon 
a glamazon, if you will, and would ride in the Bois de Boulogne wearing a bowler hat and black bow tie. Perhaps the greatest tribute to Natalie came from the British writer Radcliffe Hall, whose novel, The Well of Loneliness, had been banned in Britain for its depiction of lesbian lifestyles. In the novel, the main character, loosely based on Hall herself, is a lesbian, torn by doubt and self-loathing caused by society's rejection. In contrast to this stands the character of Valerie Seymour, based on Natalie. Her acceptance of and pride in her sexuality acts as a source of strength in the book. Natalie Barney died aged 95 years old in her house in the Rue Jacob and was buried in her beloved Paris. She did so much to showcase and support women's work and was unafraid to live without trying to hide her identity or sexuality at a time that was not forgiving or supportive. Surely she too deserves a street named after her. Now, I know I said I'd found two alternatives, but actually, while I was recording this podcast, I listened to a great episode of Rough Translation, You Don't Say That, from NPR. And so I'm just going to add one more person to our list, either for a street or just because I think she's really interesting, and especially, you know, when it comes to language. She is Nelly Buffon. Now, Nelly is still with us today. She's not a, an ancient writer, but she is a modern person. She's a writer and language activist. And she's important because until very recently, the term ghostwriter, which is someone that writes on behalf of someone in f- someone else, the word for this in French was nègre. And if you think that sounds rather like a racial slur in English, then you would be right. It means the same in French. And people don't use it. It's considered rude and quite shocking. Nelly is herself a ghostwriter and a black woman, and so needless to say, she found this both upsetting to hear and to use. She campaigned to change this word to the far better prête plume or loaned feather. Feather is sometimes used in French to mean pen, like an old fashioned type of pen or quill, and I really like the sound of this, which I think is much better. I'm sure we'd all agree. Her campaigning eventually led to the Académie Française changing this word for good. So, well done, Nelly. If you'd like to hear more about this story, um, the origins of this word, why this word was originally used, and Nelly's journey to change it, then do listen to that NPR podcast. The episode is called You Can't Say That. So that was just a little extra for you. Okay, then that's it for today. Thank you so much for listening. Do subscribe so you don't miss any further episodes because they do come out rather randomly. Um, Since we were just talking about NPR's podcast, I thought I might take the opportunity to recommend a few others. You probably know about Oliver G's podcast, The Earful Tower, if you're interested in France and French things. It's absolutely fantastic and he interviews really, really interesting people each week. And I must admit, I've been on it a couple of times myself and learned plenty as well. There's also a new podcast about France, which is called The Thing About France. And this is a podcast that invites American cultural figures to speak about their relationship between France and the US. It's going to be every other Wednesday and it's hosted by the cultural counsellor of the French embassy and she's interviewing all sorts of people like David Sedaris and Dee Dee Bridgewater so very exciting Um, and they're going to be talking about their experiences you can get that podcast in all the usual places once again thanks so much for listening take care bye bye